Well, I'm going to get a drink of water while you're seated because I'm going to have you stand right back up here in just a minute. Do things a little bit different this morning. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And as you uh, find your way to Romans chapter 1, would you uh, please rise for the reading of God's word. This is the word of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we're excited to have the Word of God uh, opened up before us. And as uh, we heard earlier and think about the freedom we have in our country, we're so grateful that we can uh, own a Bible. We can own multiple Bibles. We can give them away. We can gift them. We can read and study and memorize and ponder and meditate uh, without fear of persecution. And so, Lord, would you... Would you help us today to to cherish uh, the truth that is before us today? Help us as we continue through this prologue that we would see uh, the amazing reality that you spell out through your servant, the Apostle Paul. Lord, my prayer is that our, our hearts would be soft, that they would be willing and ready to receive the truth of your word. Lord, we uh, live in a distracted culture So I pray that every phone would be put away unless it's only for the Bible. I pray that every tablet would be put away unless it's the Bible exclusively. I pray that uh, distractions would um, be sent away this morning and our, our attention would be riveted upon you. All for the benefit of your people and most of all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. may be seated. Well, this is our our fourth week, believe it or not, in the prologue in Paul's letter to the Romans. And someone who is not accustomed to expository preaching might ask at this point, why in the world would you spend nearly four hours, literally four hours, to pour over the first seven verses, especially... If these verses are considered prologue material, if I were to ask you, and I promise I won't, at least not now, how many of you, when you read a New Testament book, skip over the prologue, my suspicion would be that that many of you do. And we want to remember that all of God's word is his truth, that his word is God breathed and that every jot and tittle has great meaning and significance in our lives. 
Others may wonder how we could learn so much from this unit of thought in Scripture. The thought occurred to me that if you have been attending Christ Fellowship for, for any period of time, you'll be tuned in to the priority that we place on knowing the Word of God, on studying the Word of God, on understanding the Word of God, on applying the Word of God. And of course, the priority we place on obeying God's holy word. And so instead of me trying to rationalize or justify or even apologize for spending so much time in these verses, my perspective is this, and I hope you agree, that we rejoice because God has given us this time to pour over these verses in God's word, that we have the opportunity to saturate ourselves in sacred scripture. Let me do just a very quick review for those of you who are guests this morning. We have in this study, looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, thus far seen Paul's unique role. We call it the powerful preamble. And under that banner of the powerful preamble, we see that Paul has a unique role. Verse 1 says this, He is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called to be an apostle, and he is set apart for the gospel of God. That is his unique role. Then we also saw that Paul's gospel is unyielding. We learn that this gospel is, is promised by God. It is promised by God. It is also presented by the prophets, and ultimately it points to the Son, namely Jesus Christ. Last week, we turned our attention to Paul's unwavering goal. And we learned this in verse 5, that for the gospel of God, this is the goal. The goal is that the gospel of God would produce life transformation among all the nations for God's glory. If the gospel is not revolutionizing your life, if, if the gospel is not transforming your life, something is severely wrong. Something is misfiring. And so this is Paul's unwavering goal. And as we reach the end of this powerful preamble, we see exactly who Paul has in mind when he pens this letter. We will see that, of course, he not only addresses the believers in first century Rome, he also addresses C.J. and Megan. He also addresses Gary and Pam. And I could run through the whole church family and say, if you are a follower of Jesus, he is talking to you. He is talking to you. Paul addresses every believer of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of redemptive history. It's important we recognize that. And so as we conclude this section, Lord willing, the title of this message is Paul's unshakable emphasis. His unshakable emphasis. And before we examine the unshakable emphasis, I want to ask you an important question. And it's a question that may cause a little bit of emotion to rise within you. And the question is this. Have you ever been in a place... Have you ever been in an environment? Have you ever gone to a party? Have you ever been to a ball game? Have you ever been in any kind of arena? You fill in the blanks where you didn't feel like you belonged. You felt totally out of place. It could be as simple as this, that you, you attend a function 
Oh, let's say it's me, and I'm, I'm dressed in my golf pants and my golf shirt, my favorite outfit, right? And I show up in this outfit, and all the women are wearing fancy dresses, and all the guys are wearing three-piece suits. And what do I want to do? I want to curl up and die because I feel out of place. How many of you remember when you were a child, and those of you that are childs, Remember the time when you went out to the backyard to play football with your buddies. And I remember this vividly. And it went something like this. Tom, you're a captain. Reggie, you're a captain. Pick your teams. I always just remember. To this day, I can feel what it was like. Because I didn't want to be the last one picked. And sometimes I was the last one picked. Have you ever been the last one picked? And you feel so out of place. You feel like you flat out do not belong. Or some of you have been to a concert. A friend invited you to a concert and they even, they even paid for your ticket. And you show up to the concert. You have not heard one song. You have no idea what these people are singing about. And you think you're from another generation because not only do you not know the words, you can't understand the words. It's that crazy rock music. <laughs> You feel like you don't belong. You walk into a room full of people and all those people know each other and they're talking on and on and on. You remember the good old days when old Uncle Sam went here and there and and they're they're laughing. And you think to yourself, I just want to go home and watch TV where I belong. I think that all of us can relate to these kinds of awkward Awkward moments where we didn't feel like we belonged. Now, as we unpack the last two verses of Romans chapter 1 in the prologue, I want you to remember a a, a vitally important principle. And this is for all of you, especially who feel like you don't belong. You might be here this morning for the very first time at Christ Fellowship, and you feel like, I didn't know any of those songs, I don't know any of these people, and this place is weird, weird, weird. I don't feel like I belong. This morning, please remember this. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong. You are accepted. You are a member of God's family. You are, as Paul says, seated in the heavenlies. You are, get ready for this, you are forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. The Bible says, and we'll learn this in Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5, you are justified. You are, Paul says, the bride of Christ. Now look at how Paul finishes this powerful preamble. Verse 6. He has just finished unpacking the goal of the gospel, which is to transform lives among all the nations. And then he continues in verse 6. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I want you to see two headings that flow from these verses. Headings that are literally packed 
with hope and realities that will enable you to to move forward in, in victory as you live the Christian life for the glory of God. The first thing I want you to see is that every follower of Christ, no one is excluded, every follower of Christ has been granted divine privileges. Let me say it again. Every follower of Christ has been granted divine privileges. Now, we are going to look at three of those divine privileges. There are more. There are many more privileges that that we have been granted as Christians. We're going to stick to the context and look at the three privileges here. The first is this, and I've already made reference to it, is we are called to belong If you are a Jesus follower, you are called to belong. The fact that we belong in the family of God is something that we should never just skim over. Think about this. Every follower of Jesus belongs to Jesus. Yet as important as the idea of this notion of belongingness is, I should tell you something and Many of you have the the English Standard Version. That is the version I'm preaching from. It is the version I will go to my grave with. I love the English Standard Version. But I should tell you that there is a word in the ESV that is not in the Greek language. It is not in the original autographs. And it's something that kind of caught me off guard as, as I was studying it. It's an interesting thing. The word belong, if you look in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, this might bother you a little bit because I'm making a huge case here for you belong, and I'm telling you belongs not in the text. And so if you're a Bible student, you should be scratching your bald head. Or if you have hair, your hairy head. And asking yourself, well, If I belong and the word's not in there, how do we reconcile that? So our task, just for a moment, is to ask why and if this translation in the English Standard Version, is it a legitimate translation here? Because the phrase is literally translated, called either to or for Jesus Christ. If you have the New American Standard, how many of you have the NAS? Anyone? Very, wow, that's amazing to me. There was a day when half the congregation was said, I've got the New American Standard. The New American Standard rightly omits that word belong. Now, do you, can you sense the tension here? Like, wait a minute, we, we are toying with something very dangerous. Was it legitimate for the translators of the ESV to include the word belong? Let me address it. The Greek word now... For called. Do you see it there? Including you who are called. You may remember this. This is the word kletos. And the reason I want to share that word is we've, we've seen it before. This is the word that appeared, if you go back to Romans 1.1, right there. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. He is kletos to be an apostle. The term refers to someone whose participation or presence has been officially requested. And with this request, refusal or a rain check is not an option. Have you ever been invited to dinner or a function or even something at Christ Fellowship or a wedding? And it says, 
RSVP. I went for years. I had no idea what that meant. It's like, what's that mean? That's weird. Well, what's it mean? It means let them know you're going to be there. Right? When, when Paul was called to be an apostle, the option of the rain check is off the table. The option of, no, my free will says I'm going to do something else, God, is off the table. He was not free to say no. It is a divine summons. And help me out here, a little interaction. When God summons someone to do something, you, you do it. You don't say, what about my free will? You say, yes, God. I am your servant. I am your slave. And so Paul's option, there's only one, is to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word refers to a divine summons. It is a specific call. It is a sovereign call. It is an irresistible call. It is a divine call. It is an intensely personal call. When God called Paul, Romans 1.1, he had Paul specifically in mind. This is the person he had in mind. When God calls one of his people, that is, everyone who is following Jesus, or before you knew Jesus, when he puts his finger on your forehead and said, it's time, your response is, I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours, Lord. And so as you can see, the word belong here, as it is translated in the English Standard Version, is not only appropriate, I believe it is absolutely necessary for it describes the sovereign activity of God in the life of a believer. If you are in Christ, you belong to Christ. Now, in what sense do you belong to him? You'll recall that we referred to slavery. Slavery. That verse 1 says that Paul is a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. The definition is a person who is legally bound by someone else. It's a person whose entire livelihood and purpose is determined by their master. Hold your finger in, in Romans chapter 1, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to look quickly at verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Because what we see here is the depths, we see how deep our belongingness goes in our relationship to God. Let me read the verse and we'll walk through it. Peter the Apostle says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received God's mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Notice what emerges in this passage. Number one, you are, let's back up the slides and go back to, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Think of this. You are a royal priesthood. You belong to Jesus. How come more of you aren't smiling? I mean, we should be ear to ear. This is it. Thank you. This is incredible. 
You are a people for his own possession. You belong to Jesus. And then Peter says, you have this special privilege and responsibility to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, called you, that's the divine summons, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are numbered among the people of God and you have received mercy. Think about it this way. If you look around the world, if you look in the United States of America, if you look in Washington, if you look in Whatcom County, if you look in Everson, think about this. Not everyone has received mercy. And, this is not popular, not everyone will receive mercy mercy many are called few are chosen and so if you think about this that i have been granted the mercy of god not everyone has received the mercy of god you say i belong to jesus how 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 amazing it is to realize that i belong to him So please understand the significance of who you belong to. You belong to the creator of the universe. You belong to the alpha and the omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. You belong to the one, and this will blow you away. You belong to the one who has been in an eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit from all eternity to all eternity. The same relationship that Jesus has enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit is yours. Now, you belong to God. Now, belonging to God is not the only divine privilege. You have another divine privilege. If you're a Christ follower, you are loved by God. Would you raise your hand if you have known ever since you can speak in complete sentences that you were loved by God? You, you, I mean, as, as far back as you can think, you remember this amazing reality that you are loved by God. If you're thinking biblically, and I think many of you are, If you're thinking biblically, you probably just had a thought that went something like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Was anyone thinking that when I said you are loved by God? You would be correct to think such a thought. God, in fact, does love the world. God loves the nations. But I want to take a moment to do a little bit of digging this morning and learn about three aspects of God's love. It's what theologians refer to as the three degrees of God's love. And this might be new for you. First, there is the the love of benevolence. God's love of benevolence, that is his goodwill to the creature from all eternity. You can say it like this. God loved us before we existed. God loved you before you existed. But then there's the love of beneficence, not benevolence, but beneficence. And that is God's love expressed in time and space. Benevolence says, I loved you in eternity past Beneficence says, I love you now. I love you as you are. 
Finally, there is God's love of complacency. That may be a new one for you. That is God's love for the creature's redeemed state. Let me say it a little bit differently. That is God's special love for his people. One of my favorite books of my whole life, of all time, is A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God. I've recommended it to many of you personally, and I hope many of you have read it. But in the first edition of that book, there is, there is some, some verbiage that goes something like this. God only loves the elect. He doesn't love the non-elect. And let me just say this. Nothing could be further from the truth. God loves the world. However, God has a special love. This is the love of complacency, a special love for his people, for his people that should blow us away. He loves us when we are renewed after the image of Christ. And so we are called to belong. We are, we are loved by God. And there's a third privilege that is this. We are called, if you look in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. We are called to be saints. Now, I want to explore something with you, and some of you will be familiar with this. If you have a background in the Roman Catholic Church or have friends or relatives who are Roman Catholics, you've, you've likely heard about this or seen this. And the question is, how does an individual become a saint in the Roman Catholic Church? You familiar with this? There's five steps in order for a person to be listed as a saint or canonized. Step one, you have to wait until five years after your death. Are you, are you following me on this? Some of you are kind of smiling, and I'm glad to see you smiling. Not for the reason you think I'm thinking either. You have to wait five years until the after, after you die, for the process of sainthood begins. However, the waiting period can be jettisoned by the Pope. The Pope can step in and say, uh, we're going we're gonna to shorten that up just a little bit. And that has actually happened in Roman Catholic Church history. Step two, you must become a servant of God. That is, you must display a sufficient amount of holiness. That is to say, after you're dead and gone and buried, the Pope and those around him will determine whether or not there has been sufficient servanthood or holiness in your life. Step three, you must show a proof of a life of heroic virtue. It would be something like this. The proof must be in the pudding for you to be labeled or listed as a saint. If the Pope decides that the person lived a life of heroic virtue, then they can at that point be labeled as venerable. Step four, there must be verified miracles. To reach the next stage, what Catholics call beatification, a miracle needs to be attributed to prayers made to the individual after death. After beatification, the candidate is given the title blessed. There is one exception, and this is fascinating to me, to this miracle requirement. And that is a martyr, someone who has been killed for his or her faith, can be beatified without a verified miracle. Are you with me? Number five, step number five, 
This is the most important step, and that is canonization. The final step is when the Pope declares the deceased person to be a saint. Take a big, big breath with me. I know I have to, because this irritates me. You know why it irritates me? Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The Bible clearly says that every follower of Jesus Christ is a saint. Not after you die. Right now. And nowhere in scripture is the imperative for a religious leader to say, you're a saint and you're a saint. Rather, the Bible says, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. The Greek word is hagios, holy ones, one who has been set apart. And this is a term that describes all those who have been Purified, And as we move through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we're going to see how that happens. How is it that you can be listed in God's book as a saint? And this is no isolated term. The word hagios it appears 233 times in the New Testament. And the term is rich in meaning and includes implications that are absolutely mind-boggling. And as I studied this word, I thought to myself, I need to stop. Because we're not going to get past verses 6 and 7, right? And so let me give you just a, a few items from the fruit of my study. The saints are designated in Scripture as those who have been sanctified. Theologians describe it like this. There are two kinds of sanctification. There's something called definitive sanctification, and that's what is referred to here. You are hagias. That is, you are sanctified definitively. That's how God sees you. But then there is a sanctification that theologians refer to as progressive sanctification. That's what you usually think of when you think of the doctrine of sanctification. That day by day by day, you are progressively transformed into the image of Christ. And Paul says in Philippians that whatever he starts, he will complete it. That is, there is not one of God's elect who will never get to the point where they are not glorified. God will glorify all of his people. God will sanctify all of his people. Additionally, the saints have received, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, a glorious inheritance. The saints are members of the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. The saints are clothed in fine linen, Revelation 19.8. The saints will inhabit the heavenly city for all eternity, Revelation 29. And we need to stop there. We could go on and on and on to see all the blessings that are included for the saints of God. Now, there's something that I, I hope you, you don't miss in verse 7. To all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, do you have any idea what we have to focus on now? You are not only identified as saints, we are called. There it is again. That's the third time, isn't it? We are called to be saints. So this is a word that you have some experience with. 
It's the word that occurs in Romans 1.1 that we've already looked at. But it's also the word that's included in Romans 1.6. We are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This, again, is a divine summons. This is the sovereign initiative and activity of God. You might say it like this. You have been summoned to be a saint. And the summons to be a saint is utterly irresistible. It is utterly irresistible. And you've heard me say this many, many times. What about free will? And the answer to that is, what about it? You have been summoned to be a saint. Let me apply this. The very first time I went to the Republic of Belarus, I took a photograph that we'll put on the screen for you. And I refer to this photograph, and some of you have seen this before. I refer to this photograph as, without a doubt, the saddest photograph that I have ever personally taken. I also refer to this photograph as one of the saddest photographs I've ever seen in my life. I was only feet away from this young woman who sat on the edge of the riverbank, and I have no idea what she was struggling with. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that many Christians are in this posture. As I talk to people on a weekly basis, they may not physically be in that posture, but in their heart and in their mind, their lives are characterized by discouragement, by depression. And I need to say that when when life becomes unbearable, when When temptation has you by the throat, when your marriage appears to be crumbling, when you feel like throwing in the towel, will you remember, and I'm begging at this point, will you remember that you have been granted divine privileges? When when you feel like that, and I think this is a photograph that's really easy for women to relate to because that is a woman. But I want the guys, I want the boys and the young men and the men to to get into this illustration with all the rest of the women and the girls and to imagine if that's me, if I'm struggling with doubt or unbelief or depression or anxiety or fear or my marriage has gone south or my kids have gone south or my job stinks, I hate it. Remember this, you have been granted divine privileges. You belong. You are loved by God. You are called a saint. Flip over with me to Romans chapter 8, just briefly. Romans chapter 8. Because Paul builds upon this theme and focuses on it for a moment. He says in Romans 8 verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You have been loved by God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, salmon or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... By the way, the culture that we live in 
is a culture of uncertainty. Have you picked up on that? And in this culture of uncertainty, if, if you are certain about anything, this is what I've learned, people are certain that they disagree with you. They're certain that you're arrogant. They're certain that now you're, you're, just, you're into Bible stuff, right? But Paul says he is certain about something. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? These are divine privileges that God has granted to you if you were a follower of Christ. But Paul is not finished. He moves from divine he moves from these divine privileges to divine gifts. And we're going to look at two of them. And of course, there are many more, as I've indicated. But the divine gifts are revealed for us at the end of verse 7. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look briefly at the source of these gifts. That is a fancy way of saying, who are these gifts from? It's been many years now when we lived in LeGrand. And I remember during the Bush administration, President Bush had an attorney general who is one of my heroes. I'm just going to say it. He was and he is. And his name was Attorney General John Ashcroft. And I remember watching the media destroy the attorney general. This is a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a man of integrity. This is a man of honor. This is a man who served his country valiantly. And all I heard in the media was how evil he was and how dishonest he was and what a, what a mean, ugly person he was. And I remember I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to write a letter to John Ashcroft. You're going to what? I'm going to write a letter to John Ashcroft. What are you going to tell him? I'm going to tell him I'm praying for him. And you know, when you write a letter in this point in American history, you, you think like me, he'll never receive it. He'll never read it. But I felt like before Almighty God, I needed to write that letter. So I wrote the Attorney General this letter. A few weeks later, I go to the mailbox. And there's an envelope. And the return address says, The Office of the Attorney General. I couldn't believe it. I thought... Either I'm going to get arrested and indicted, or the Attorney General wrote me back. And he writes, Dear Dr. Steele, thank you for your thoughtful letter. Due to the changes in correspondence and the mail handling procedures of the Department of Justice and the result of the anthrax scare, your letter has just recently reached my office. Your prayers of support and encouragement are of inspiration to me. I'll do my best to continue to deserve your trust. Now... I get emotional when I read this for a reason. This comes from the guy who is number six in presidential succession. Did you hear that? And I got the letter. It's important for me to say this is from Attorney General Ashcroft. It means something to me. And so when we think about the source of the gifts, we apply this like this. We need to come to terms with who gives these two gifts that we're going to look at. 
We need to come to terms with the source of the gift because it becomes critically important. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 tells us that this grace was granted to the people of God in eternity past. That is to say, the gifts that we receive, God had this settled in eternity past. And the two gifts that Paul refers to come directly, not from the attorney general. They come from the God of the universe. And he gives them on a silver platter to you, Spence. It's for you. Paul and Jennifer and your whole family, he gives it to you. He gives it to the winters. He gives it to the Coxes. It is from, not the Attorney General, as neat as that would be, right? It's from Almighty God. Sometimes I wish I pastored a black church, right? Because at this point, people would be going, amen, jumping up and down, right? I hope I don't get in trouble for that. Right? We need more color, right? Let's get excited. Thank you. The God of the universe is, is giving gifts on a, on, a, on a silver platter. Right? This is nothing. This is nothing. Think about what God has given you. Look with me at the substance of the gifts. By the way, my best friend's a black man, and I can't wait to tell him this week what I just said. He will love it. He will love it. God, yes, God has given us, look at verse 7, grace. He's granted grace. It comes from a Greek word that means Goodwill freely granted from God. Now you see why it's so important to look at the source of the giver. God is is giving you his grace on a silver platter. A few examples. John the Apostle says in John 1.16, For from his fullness, this is God, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Acts 4.33 Great grace. John Newton called it amazing grace, right, Tom? Amazing grace. Here in Acts chapter 4, it's great grace. For some reason, I'd missed that. And I thought, great grace, that is so cool, has been granted to them all. Now, we are not only saved by grace, we are bestowed with grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells us that God's grace is sufficient. And so over and over again in Scripture, we are told that grace will be with the people of God. And then at the end of Romans, I won't have you turn there, but at the very end in chapter 16, fascinating, verse 20 reveals that it is this grace all along that has been sustaining us. I don't know about you, but I need it. Anyone with me? I need that sustaining grace. There's another gift that we've received. Look at it at verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes from a word that means the blessing or the favor of God. And is this not exactly what we need in this ridiculous culture that we live in? We need the peace of God. The peace of God is the great need of the nations. And so when we come to Romans chapter 5, in a few years, (laughs) 
not joking. We will learn the basis of that peace, which comes as a result of being declared righteous, being declared a saint in the sight of God. So Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is Paul's unshakable emphasis in verses 6 and 7. That every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has been granted divine privileges and divine gifts. And here's the beautiful thing. The only way you can do to receive them is to believe. If you're a guest this morning at Christ Fellowship and you're one of those people who say, yeah, I do feel a little out of place. You keep talking to people like they're Christians. You have not been addressing me. And that would be the truth. But now I'm addressing you if you are not a Christian. Is God promises these divine privileges and these divine gifts to you if you will receive them by simple faith. And it works like this. You, you look to the Lord Jesus Christ who, who lived the life that you could never live. And he died the death that you and I deserve to die. And you say, I am a sinner. I turn from my sin. I repent of my sin. I believe on you, Jesus, the one who died on the cross and was raised on the third day for my sins. You see, there is a spiritual treasure chest, as I referred to last week, that awaits every person who banks all their hope and future exclusively on the resurrected Christ. The way I like to say it is this. Everyone in this world is banking on something. Some people, they take the chip and they're going to bank it on pleasure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take my chip and I'm going to bank it on pleasure. Other people take their chip and they bank it on a career. Still others come along and they, they bank it on relationships. And other people come and they say, those don't work for me. I'm going to bank my chip on, on sports. And if I can't make it in sports, life is not even worth it. Life is not even worth it. Some people bet their chip on prosperity and financial success and their goal is to become a, a millionaire or to make five million dollars or ten million dollars they bank their chips on all these on all these different things but here's what they're doing all of the people that bank those chips are gambling with their eternity they're gambling with their eternity the lord jesus says what does it profit a man who gains the world but loses his soul and what he meant by this was lose his soul in an eternal hell i heard someone say yesterday no one ever preaches on hell anymore may i just say it like this if you reject jesus christ you will go to hell forever so here's the choices go to hell forever or receive divine privileges belongingness being loved by god being called a saint and receiving divine gifts. And we only looked at two of them to receive grace and to receive peace. Those are your options. There's only two options in this life. And so what I'm submitting to you is this. 
as you take the pleasure chip off and you take the career chip off and the relationship off and the, and the financial success off, you put all your chips back in the basket and you do something like this. You're going to take all your chips and you're going to cast all your hope and future in Jesus Christ. What are you banking your chips on? Because if you bank your chips in pleasure or sex or relationships or possessions, at the end of the day, that is at the end of redemptive history, you will pay for your gamble in the lake of fire. But if you cash all your chips on the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive divine privileges, you you receive divine gifts, grace and peace, and many more. Most notably, you receive the gift of eternal life. Why doesn't everyone cash all their chips on Jesus? So that's the question this morning. Will you cash all all your chips on the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will you settle for the trinkets that the world has to offer and then lose your soul in hell. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the the free gift that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for, even as Christians, for, for banking our chips on temporal things. Lord, help us to remember to, to have a, a revived and eternal perspective today to remember that we have been granted in Christ divine privileges, that we belong to Christ, that we are loved by God, that we are called saints. And this is nothing that we have to wait for someone to pronounce upon us. We are saints now if we are Christians. But also, God, help us to be encouraged with the fact that we have received divine gifts. We have received, as we will sing about in a moment, grace and peace, not from the attorney general, not from a world leader, but from you, the sovereign, holy God of the universe. If you're here this morning, you are not a Christian. Would you simply cry out, God, I I confess for the first time I'm a sinner. I have violated your law. I have scorned your holy law. I have mocked you and everything that you hold to be dear and precious. I recognize it now that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And so I turn from my sin. I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that I would be saved. And I cash all my chips on you, Jesus. Thank you that as of this very moment, I have received these divine privileges Thank you that at this very moment I have received the the divine gifts of grace and peace and look forward to hearing in the weeks to come all the other gifts that are afforded me in Christ all because of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.